0: This is the PowerShell Podcast. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community.
1: Uh, the PowerShell Podcast.
0: A production of pdq.com. Making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm Jordan with ultra-mega-superstar host, Andrew Plaw, And we're here. We're celebrating one year of the podcast... I I can't imagine a better guest to celebrate this than Don Jones. How you doing? I'm doing really good now. I'm very excited. This is, uh, I'm, I've been nervous leading up to this one. I'm excited about it though. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, that's a horrible start for me.
1: You, have to, you have to go first. So, <laughs> yeah, the,
0: uh, I, I guess for, for me, if, if we're going to start talking about anything, that would want to be Summit. 2018 was the first summit I attended. Andrew was there as the first scholarship attendee, and yeah, uh, you you gave the the one of opening speeches there, talking about how it's time to hand it off to the old guard, and so so I yep. guess I talked to the process of I guess t- tell us everything yeah. summit all in five
1: minutes no, <laughs> so you know we, we started summit th- there had been this this um, directory experts conference that NetPro was doing, and, and they kind of added an exchange track and they added a PowerShell track, and it was super beneficial to the team because the PowerShell team through TechEd and Ignite, they met a lot of people, but they tended to be entry level. And that's good because you need, you need to hear from them, but it means they were hearing a very one-sided story about PowerShell and how people engaged. And so after NetPro got bought by Quest and they kind of shut down that, that set of conferences, um, the team came to you know, Jason Helmick and I and said, look, we, we actually, we had lunch. I've got a photo of, of from Jason's journal with our Microsoft visitor badge stickers on the page. Um, and Kenneth Hansen and um, Aaron Chappell sat down and said, look, we need you to run a conference. And we're like, oh, okay. And, and they explained why. And we said, yeah, that's a good idea. So we 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 got it together. Uh, it was 90 people the first year. We were in two Microsoft conference rooms. The next year after that, we moved to the Maidenbauer Center. Um, and really, for me, just ha- having seen people build these things in the past, the founders need to stay there for about five years, and then they need to leave because otherwise you get locked into this groove of what those people intended. And you, you stop being flexible to the new people that are coming in. And after at a certain point, you stop thinking about handing it off and you have to, life is going to happen. Business is going to happen. You're going to die. You're going to want to retire. Like if you want to build something that can outlive you, especially as a community volunteer effort, you need to get that happening in about five years. We We didn't. Right, the first year was 2013, and so by 2018 we were kind of over already, um, and that's why it was really important to me to to make that happen and to get it going. And we'd had a couple of false starts with folks who said they wanted to come help out, and then life happened and they weren't able to. And uh, James Petty had come along, and he was really he was doing our books for us. He was our CFO, and was interested in taking over. And um, I, at that point, was shifting my career. Uh, you know, Jason was as well. Um, and I, I needed, I needed to not deal with the technology day by day. Um, I was moving into leadership position and I knew that was going to consume just a massive amount of my time. And I, you know, summit was going to wind up being second class and I didn't want that to happen. And so 2018 is where we started that 2019. I officially said, you know, I'm out. Jason's out. Everybody's out. Jeff Hicks stuck around because he's still very much engaged with the community. Um, but he he stepped back. He's let, like he's not like running it like he used to. He's been doing
0: the on-ramp for incomers.
1: Yeah, which is really perfect because he and I just nail that that entry level bit um really well. And we're it, it's it's weird because people expect us at Summit. And you know, they've read our books. That's how a lot of people learned PowerShell for the first time and they want to talk to us, but we're actually not the right speakers for Summit. Because it's a very expert level event, and Jeff and I actually aren't really experts, especially me. Jeff digs around and pokes around a lot more than even I ever did. Um, and people are like, but you know everything." I'm like, "No, I just know the bits that you learned first, and so you think that." Um, so yeah, Onramp is is fantastic for us. But um, I'm I'm just I'm super happy that James was able to keep it all going through the pandemic. I'm super happy that it's coming back. You know, this year as you said is the 10th anniversary. Um, I'm taking a road trip up there with with Chris. Um, a lot of people don't know Chris, but Um, Chris was instrumental because Chris is an event manager for a living. And he, he charged us nothing, um, to negotiate the space and negotiate the food and figure out the logistics and make sure the escalators were running in the right direction. And just a hundred pieces of bullshit that have to happen every hour of the day, you know, um, the buffet comes out. He's like, "Nope, that was supposed to be our vegan dish. And you put cheese on top of it, take it back. Like just so many little details happening all the time. Um, so he's going to come back. Uh, we're going to make a little road trip up from Las Vegas and uh, we'll be there Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday to see folks. I, I just, I can't wait.
0: I can't imagine the scope of that. Cause this last year, John Janelle was in charge of food it was, it's, and I'm sure he had other parts, but food was the main focus and he was busy with just that. It, yeah.
1: Food's bonkers. <laughs> it's, it, first of all, it's, it's, it's insanely, Wow, that's super bright. The sun just came up. It's super expensive. Um, like in a convention center, like all that space gets paid for by the food. And all the people's salaries and all the gratuities. So coffee runs, you know, a hundred bucks a gallon. That's that's actually not an absurd number. Here in Las Vegas, it's more than that. Um to to feed everybody at a buffet, once you've paid your 20% gratuity and tax and da 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 and all that garbage, 50-60 bucks a head from a buffet. Wow. It's expensive. It's really, really expensive. And then you start adding in you know, like people will come to you and say, Oh, I need a kosher meal. And you're like, are you sure? Like, if you just don't want pork, that's cool. We're not going to serve any, but if you legit need kosher, I have to have that made at an offsite kitchen because it's got to be blessed and observed and, and there's rules. And ultimately you're going to get a plastic box full of leaves and some brown sauce on top. Cause that's what <laughs> always happens. <Yeah. laughs> um, so yeah, I mean the, the, the catering aspect of a conference is, is insane. It's one of the single most difficult pieces of it. You have a minimum you have to spend in order to justify using all that space, which is, why, which is why you'll see us be like, yeah, get another keg of beer. It's not that we're drunk. It's that we've got 800 bucks left to spend. And so we might as well spend it. I have a
2: question about Summit. Uh, I know there's a big focus on stepping out of your shell, asking questions, getting involved. Where did that come from? And, and kind of why did that start getting injected? Because I think it's part of what makes Summit so magical is the way people about yeah. themselves in the general community.
1: I didn't want to run another tech mentor. Not that there's anything wrong with a tech mentor. I didn't want to run another mini Ignite or TechEd. People people go to those and they consume, and and that's fine. That's what it's for, right? But Summit wasn't like we didn't put Summit on for the attendees. We put it on for the team. And the team needed to hear from people who were using PowerShell at a variety of levels. And we are not the most social group, right? So I really wanted to make sure that there was an environment where people felt comfortable you know, not knowing an answer and asking a question, where they felt comfortable talking to the team, where they felt comfortable talking to each other and exchanging ideas. And another piece of that too is if you go to a conference and you learn a lot, then you might go back the next year, but you also might not. If you go and you feel like this, this is your tribe now, these are your people, and you miss them from last year, and you miss that feeling of of belonging, you're going to find a way to come back. You're going to try really flipping hard to find a way to come back. And we tried to keep the pricing to the point where a lot of people paid for it on their own, um, like when their boss wouldn't. We, we actually make very little profit. Off summit as intended. We made enough to run the org, and that was it. Um, But the whole idea of of like talk to people um, is because I I wanted it to be a community, and that's why we never blew it up to five hundred people. We could have, we could have run a five hundred person event, but I just I felt it would lose it.
2: Wow, that's interesting to hear because I would have thought that you know maybe you would have done it for four or five years and been like, okay, we need to focus more on this. But it sounds like from very early on, this is part of it. And from what I've observed, is usually for things to actually last, they have to be kind of part of that core values type thing. And yeah. I think that's it's really cool to see that that's what part of what makes uh, Summit so special.
1: You you have to go into your business knowing what your business is for and what you want it to be, and and you need to write that down as a mission statement, which we did. And you need to stick with that. Um, we always had some backup plans, like if we couldn't find anyone to take it over and we couldn't do it, we could have sold the event to a media company that does conferences, and it would have been fine for a year or two. But then they would have killed it, right? Because they would have focused on increasing the attendance and increasing the revenue. And I, I get it; they're a business. That's what they're for. Um, by setting it up as a nonprofit, we we took some of that away. And and I, I yeah I just I really wanted to make sure it was it was for the people. Like, you know, the people come and got some real value outside of just the technical content. Um, You know, I mean, look at you, you're doing a podcast and, and you joined that community and now you're, you're a contributing part of it. So that's, that's what I wanted to say.
2: And thank you so much for that opportunity. It's been really awesome to be going through this journey or whatever. Uh, But one thing that you've mentioned earlier and one key lesson that I learned and have been learning and, and try to position myself to execute on someday is creating a system that outlives you, like you said, that you can hand off to someone else that is sustainable, that continues to give value. That to me is some of the most powerful things in the whole world. And I'm so yeah. fortunate to have been able to see someone execute on that and get to experience the benefits of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's about creating something that offers value to people and and showing people that you can do this. You can contribute to this. you you don't have to run the whole thing. There's a bunch of us who run it. You can step in and pick part of that up. And if if you lay that out for people and you make it really transparent and clear to people, um, then you usually will find someone who says, yeah, you know what? I want a piece of that.
2: Now, looking at your career now, let's take you way back. Early on in your career, you're just getting started out in tech. Uh, you're just starting sure. to make some money and feeling good about yourself. How would well, you make, feel make, about- Making money. I don't know about feeling good about myself. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> fair. That's a stretch. How would you, I guess, feel about what you've done so far with creating organizations that help people in huge ways, writing books, having this massive impact? How do you wrap your head around that? Um, Because to me, even impacting a few people is really awesome. But but to be where you are now compared to then, it's got to be a big thing to wrap your head around.
1: Yeah. I'm not even sure I, I wrap my head around it now, to be honest with you. Um, Like intellectually, I know that a lot of people have bought the books and then I go to some places and, you know, people come up and, and say incredibly nice things, but I I probably still don't even know the scope of it. I, I, you know, I was, I'm not college educated. I was a relatively lower middle-class kid, Navy parents. Um, My first tech job was very much an accident, right? My guidance counselors told me I I couldn't do computers, couldn't do computers. Um, I didn't like math. I didn't like doing math homework. And apparently, that's what you have to do to do computers. Um, so my first job was was desktop support. It was for a retailer. Um, I did register support. So we had computer-based point of sale. Uh, and it was very much accidental. I worked for the company in one of the stores and just applied for the job and, and, and got it. if I was to go back and tell that person that, like, you know, 30 years from now, you will have written a, bu- a bunch of books and spoken at conferences and everything else, I don't think that would have made sense. I just... <laughs> I would have had no context whatsoever. Um, I don't know that I read a lot of magazines. You know, the books I read were novels, which ironically now I am writing. Um, I, I didn't know conferences were a thing, you know, like I was 24 when I got my first tech job. Um, so I, I would It wouldn't have made any sense.
0: Well, So even with the, the books you wrote, it seems like the community is involved. It's like PowerShell the Month of Lunches, which is probably the most recommended. Yeah. I think in the latest version you wrote the forward for it, but it's like a yeah. mini hands. James James Petty took a lot of that on as well. So it's even the useful <laughs> I had nothing book. to do.
1: Yeah. yeah, I had nothing to do with the latest edition other than writing a forward And they adopted the the text that Jeff and I had written. It's very much their work. Um, but yeah, and that that's another case. Like Manning obviously wanted to keep the book going. I I obviously can't. Um, and so we, you know, they worked to find some people who could take it over. And I tried to be as supportive as I could and and, and bringing them together. But, you know, it, it's funny to say that about that book. So, you, you know, I wrote like three PowerShell books prior to month of lunches, right?
0: Really? I, I know you wrote yeah. Windows Server 2003 weekend crash yeah. course.
1: No, <laughs> let me, let me grab the first PowerShell book that was ever published in the world was this guy.
2: The field manual.
1: No, the friendly manual. The friendly Definitely manual. not the other app. So, I wrote that. Um, Jeff and I did. We wrote a second edition. And then when PowerShell 2 came out, we wrote another one. And we did that when we were at Sapien. And I left Sapien and I said, you know, I'm actually pretty proud of those books. Um, I'm not going to, I don't feel really the need to write anymore. But I started teaching classes to people who had never used VBScript. And I started realizing that this book was very much written for someone who did VBScript. If you get into the table of contents of this sucker, and this is just a giant flipping book, first chapter, first chapter, variables, expressions, special characters, functions. First chapter, this is a programming book, and I started to realize that I was coming at it wrong. Um, that was a great book for someone who wanted to switch from script to PowerShell, but if you'd never done any of that and you didn't want to be a programmer, I was completely burying the headline on what PowerShell was. And there was a lot of people who wanted not this book, not the TFM book. And so I sat down and I, I worked out the, the outline for the month of lunches book. Um, I wanted to make a promise, right? Give me an hour a day for a month and I will take you to a place. And so that's where the month of lunches came from. And that used to be a shtick in the publishing industry, right? You had learned in 24 hours. I wrote a book called Windows Server 2003 weekend crash course. So that kind of promise approach was not uncommon. And I... I said, I I don't want to teach programming. I want to teach PowerShell as a shell. And so I I tried to sequence the material out really well so that you you weren't introduced to something until it was time to use it. I wasn't doing foreshadowing. I was going to cover what I was going to cover. And looking at the market and looking at the problem that people had, looking at the need and creating something specifically for that need is why that is the best-selling PowerShell book still.
2: Sounds like you really understood the problem that you were trying to solve with the book. By then, I did. And in the beginning with PowerShell 1,
1: the problem was getting DB script people to switch. That was the problem. Like even the team was concerned about it. Um, but the market evolves. Things change. More people came in. And you ha- if you're going to run a business, and, and writing a book is running a business, if you're going to run a business, you need to constantly evaluate your marketplace and decide if your original product is still, in fact, the product or if you don't need to pivot, expand, you know, whatever.
2: It's good advice. It sounds like you spend, uh, or you find success in observing the larger system and how to approach things. Um, one thing that I, I- you, you mentioned a uh, company's mission statement, having a well-defined one of those. And another thing was in your tech career book, you mentioned having like a career story and really writing things down. And I think that that's yep. one takeaway that I've seen is really putting things to paper to really take that next step. It feels great in your mind at the time of reading it. Oh, this feels like it's valuable and blah, blah, blah. But actually going through the process of writing things down, defining things for yourself yeah. can be really useful.
1: Not only writing it, but reading it aloud to someone else family member, even just yourself. And, and there actually is a reason for that. The, the human brain builds memories based on experiences. So there's different parts of your brain that run different things, vision, hearing, touch, sense, all that. The part that just does abstract thinking is a great part and we need that part. But the, the neural networks that light up in that part stay contained to that part. When you start attaching other parts of your brain, I'm writing it. It's a very tactile activity. I'm reading it aloud. Now I, I hear that. Uh, you know, Other people are hearing it. You start to encompass more of your brain and that that network becomes larger and it becomes stronger. And it means it becomes more of who you are, right? It, it starts to change the person that you are in a direction that you're driving. So engaging more of your brain all the time is, is how you change your brain. It's how you retrain yourself to do something that you want to do.
2: Do you have any advice for approaches to books? Like there's a lot of books with great lessons in it, but how do you read a book nonfiction and get the most out of it and, and really uh, absorb it? I don't,
1: <laughs> I, I don't read nonfiction books. Fair. Um, I, I don't learn well that way. Um, I learn well through a very constructionist approach, which means I kind of have to build my own model and, i'm I'm good at building models that work for other people, but other people aren't good at building models that work for me. I can't read someone else's model very well. Um, i if I'm reading a nonfiction book um, and I have, like I've read books on cognitive science and everything else, it's a very stop start flipping back and forth, you know, interspersed with periods of internet research and everything else, um so that I can construct my own model. Interesting.
0: So, was soft skills something that was a focus at the start of summit or is that something that you just recognized a need later on and started adding the track for soft skills?
1: Uh, it, it came later, probably in the flick like of the third year. I want to say, because um, a, a bunch of us started to realize that your tech skills aren't what make your career successful. And the reason I know that is because zero people go from the age of 20 to the age of 50 using the same tech skills right? The industry is just not going to last that long. Um, I've had to learn cloud technologies. I've had to learn PowerShell. Like I've had to learn all kinds of stuff along the way. And and we all do. That tells me your, your current tech skills are not what will make you successful. So then you start asking, well, what will like, what's the, what's the through line that will make you successful curiosity, communications, professionalism, all of those things those will last your entire career. and those are the things that will will level up. If you look at job descriptions, um yeah, it's a huge bullet list of technologies, but what they really care about is communications, teamwork, leadership, things like that.
2: and I think that mature orgs recognize the impact of those things on a team. It's not all technical impact. It is a, a lot of times the things in between that are hard to quantify sometimes it's
1: Honestly, even a lot of immature orgs are now. There, there's enough people in the industry that get that. Like, if, if you're coming into a, a 50 person team and you're an, a jerk, like, your blast radius is going to be huge. You're going to create a lot of disruption in that small team. So, honestly, giant companies that are more mature have more room for jerks than smaller, less mature companies because the, the jerk is going to pull everything off the rails pretty easily.
2: I meant more emotionally mature, rather than like uh, profit-wise Oh, no, I don't type. think any.
1: I don't think any company is emotionally mature.
2: <laughs> well, the that's, sum of that's, their that's employees str- may be in there.
1: Yeah, that's a struggle. Everything goes through. I mean, that's where you really come to the point where a company is not a person, um, and and you start having to look at the people, the leaders, the individual contributors. Um, they are the company is not the sum of its people in that way. Um, it's easy to think about that. We want to think about that, right? Because we're used to companies being entities, um, but but they're not, right? They're not sentient. There's no, there's no central brain.
2: But there are kind of central policies that sort of dictate behavior in a certain way. And combined with people in leadership positions can have a pretty leadership size impact. Yeah.
1: It's leadership. It's abs- And it's not, that's not management. It's leadership. It's leading by example. It's, it's living your values. It's, it's stating what your values are so that everybody knows because not everybody's going to like your values. And if, if they don't like, maybe this isn't the right place for them. Maybe they'd be happier somewhere else because you know, I am the CEO and these are my values and this is how I'm going to run the company. And if you know that, and they're not your values, then we're not going to get along. So it is, it's leadership.
2: Yeah. I've really learned to appreciate how important having core values and living those out and demonstrating those and really being about them is for a company's success, which is just interesting because high-level leadership, which I guess you're in the executive leadership type space now, its I, I don't have an insight into it, but I imagine it's like you're trying to control things, but your mechanisms to control them are often a step removed, right? Because you're not their direct manager, you're not directly responsible for things, but you can allocate budgets, you can kind of strategically approach things. How can you help me as an outsider understand what your role is in things as an executive and, and how they go about making things happen?
1: Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> I have never met an executive who felt they had it fully dialed in, right? Um, executives are people too. Uh, a lot of executives, particularly in startups and tech companies, um, it's it's their first or second time being an executive they're dealing with novel situations right so um, a lot of us are we're, we're trying things we're using our experience as best we can the overall role is this decide what you're going to do decide what you're not going to do right in discussions you know with my engineering leader and my sales leader and whoever else marketing we believe this is where the company can make money because at the end of the day that's what we're all here for we're here to make money period maybe we'll change some lives while we're making that money and we need to build that into our plans. But at the end of the day, we have to make money to pay everybody their paychecks. It's just that simple. Um, so figure out where we think we can make the money and then start to line up our teams around that. And that's, that's called vision casting. That means, look, we're going to go make this much money this year. Here's the type of customer we're going to go after. Here's the problem we're going to solve for them. Here's the problems we are not going to solve for them. We are setting these aside. We're not going to focus our efforts on this. Now, each team, what does that mean to you? How are you going to help us deliver this solution to those customers? Oh, well, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that sounds good. You brought up a couple of problems there. We're going to have to coordinate across teams. A lot of it's coordinating across teams. Um, a lot of it is, I think you're overthinking that or underthinking that. Let's set that aside for a minute. It's leadership. It's getting people to walk through it. Uh, And then, ideally, once everybody's lined up around what they're going to do, letting them do it. Like, not whiplashing them in a different direction every five minutes.
0: So that's why I've always been curious, because a lot of times I hear leadership and and moving up in the ranks, and my approach to my career has almost always been, I just want to do my job. Like, I I don't want to be part of the... Like if they want my technical advice, sure. But I don't want to be part of the driving the things. Just put put me in room and and I'll make things run, which to yeah. me seems extremely valuable, right? I'm not going to step on toes it and I just sit there. but every every time I hear about most things of folks, it feels like uh, people believe I'm I don't know missing a, a core part of of the experience. I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, look, leadership is a different job. It entails different skills. There's different stresses. There's different pressures. Um, it's not for everybody. even if it even if someone would be good at it, it doesn't mean it's for them. It is a different job. It would be like if you quit tech and took up painting houses. It is a different job. You might be fantastic at painting houses, but it might not be what you want to do right So don't let people push you into it. Um, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy getting to the end of a quarter and, and my team has done what we said we would do and we've seen the results of that and those are positive results. We failed a few times, we learned some things, we documented those, we've modified our processes going forward accordingly. I enjoy that. Um, not everybody does. And, and, if, and if you don't, then you shouldn't do it. Um, I, for me, another small piece of it is if you've ever had a bad leader And you know you can be a good one you can do that for other people like it's not just i enjoy it i enjoy my team having a success and part of the reason they have that success is because i kept other people off their backs i got them the resources they need i made sure they only committed to doing the things we knew we were able to deliver that would create value like i helped i helped create the runway to that success and then they flew the plane Um, having a bad leader is terrible and being a good leader is something you can do for other people to help them be successful.
2: It feels good.
0: Yeah. I do appreciate a good leader. Like current boss. I mean, I'm not just saying this cause he edited this and he's listening. He's, he's fantastic. He <laughs> just lets me, he, he, he knows my strengths and weaknesses and he lets me play into my strengths and he will help me grow my weaknesses if they start to become a problem. So I, I love that kind of leadership. It's just, it's, that's not for me. Uh, I just,
1: it's <laughs> not for everybody. It's not.
2: There's nothing wrong with that either. It, it, no, it, it's, it's good career. to
1: recognize that. Large, large enough companies, uh, Microsoft's a good example, will have career tracks that are leadership and non-leadership. Um, Jeffrey Snober, for example, as he went up through distinguished engineer, technical fellow, that is Microsoft's technology leader track, not people leader. There's still some people leadership there, but you know he wasn't on the, the vice president, senior vice president, corporate vice president track.
2: The thing that entices me the most about like an executive level role is that your actions and time and and the way you lead has such a large like impact and rundown. It's just very efficient. Um, I like that about it.
1: But I have a you can you can be a force multiplier. um,
2: Oh yeah, for for good or for bad. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. How does one with your background find themselves in an executive role? Like how did you go? Cause you mentioned no college education earlier. How, do, how did you navigate that? I mean, you had to prove some stuff along the way. or
1: I don't know. I really don't. I, yeah, I, organically, a lot of it was at Pluralsight. Um, I had, I had managers at Pluralsight that were willing to give me a shot that I think, I think saw, you know, saw me doing this and said, you know what, we can probably use more of that. Oh, we could probably use more of that. We could probably use more of that. Um, It it was a little bit of the right place at the right time. Um, What I'm really good at, like if if I had to boil down my skill set, is process engineering. That's what I'm really good at. You can give me a new thing that you need built, and I'll figure out how to build it and get it moving. Um, Then I get bored, and I want to do something else. You can give me something that's broken, and I can figure it out, and I can fix it. Um, I can get it moving. I can get all the right people in place so that it doesn't need me to run on a regular. It's, it's, it's industrial engineering, essentially. It's process engineering. Um, for me, writing a book is a lot like process engineering. Like Everything in my head gets filtered through that way. So if I'm in a position, and at Side, I was, where we needed to fix processes, right? this got us to this point of scale, but now we need to 10x that, and it's just not going to work. Or we needed to build a new thing right? We're doing these partnerships. We're, we're going to bring conference content into the platform. That's where I'm great. I'm a good leader for that type of stuff. And it's, it's essentially what I'm doing in my current role is, is a lot of taking processes that got us to a certain point, taking products that got us to a certain point and saying, okay, what needs to happen to 10x this? Um, is this even the right product anymore? Is this, is this the right way to do things? Um, are we really living up to our mission with our current process, all that type of stuff. And then um, fixing what needs to be fixed, expanding what needs to be expanded.
0: You said earlier that you were now writing fantasy novels, which I was looking through it and you have like three different ongoing franchises at the same time, which seems like a lot to Brandon yeah, Sanderson <laughs> territory.
1: But yeah. I, I was just wondering. They're all, they're all cle- if you read them, they're all cleverly intertwined though.
0: Oh, well, you're really in Brandon Sanderson territory, then. I'm, oh yeah,
1: yeah. I, yeah. To- I love I love Sanderson.
0: <laughs> so, I, I guess my my main question is: is the writing process for your technical manuals and your your self help the same as the writing process for fantasy, or is that just a completely different animal?
1: It, it didn't start that way, um, and honestly, my first books weren't. You know, mega fantastic writing. I think there were good stories, there were great premise, there were some good characters, there's some good scenes and events and action that happened. The the writing itself was maybe a little weaker. Um, I probably could have I could, could have done stronger plot arcs. Um if you go so if you go to donjones.com and you sign up for my newsletter, you get my first five novels as ebooks for free. Um and that's the Achilles Chronicles trilogy, and uh it's a superhero one called um the prime wave accounting. And and now that i've said that you know some of the plot arcs are a little weak they don't really arc the way they should you'll read those and you'll go like that was fun but i see what he was talking about as i've kind of evolved how i write to make sure that i'm accounting for plot arcs and i'm getting all the right characters and story beats and everything else it turns out that yes my writing process is almost exactly the same and if i'd started that way then i would have written stronger out of the gate and i don't know why i didn't i just it, it didn't occur to me that the way I outline a technical book is actually the right way to outline a fantasy book as well.
0: I I can see not tying them together at the start. I mean, they're very
1: as a I, reading it, it experience. Very sense. Yeah, <laughs> but so I, I have a Patreon up, and there's some public posts. Posts, if um, I, let me see what the actual URL is, and I'll tell you. Patreon. Don Jones. Writes. Slash. Don Jones writes. Yeah. So I I'm posting some of my novel outlines up there, and if you look at them. They're a little more narrative, obviously, but they're very bullet pointy and sub bullet pointy and, and they look an awful lot like a month of lunches book outline that I might have written.
0: I I just think it's, it's fascinating that, uh, it's the same process because it's very different outcomes. It isn't,
1: it it isn't. isn't no writing a good technology book is telling a story. If you go back and look at one of my month of of lunches books, and honestly, the SQL server administration one might be easier, especially if you're not into SQL, because you can kind of take yourself out of the the topic and you can just look at the the crafting of it. I get to an end at the beginning of the chapter. I try to lay out a problem, which is very much what you try to do in writing fiction. You try to get some action moving. You try to get some sort of conflict or contention or something else going. And then I walk you through the solution. At the end of a a fiction chapter, you want a hook. You want something, you know, um, and then the doorbell rang, right? Something that draws you in the next chapter. I do exactly the same thing in the month of lunches books. I'm like, well, now that I've shown you that, blah, 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 blah. But what about, eh?" and there's that hook there. And the idea behind teaching, if you're doing it right, is you want one storyline. I'm not going to teach you everything. I can't. But I want a storyline that will get you from point A to point B, and I want to keep you on that same story arc. And And that story arc is about you. The reader is the protagonist. It's a, it's, it's, there's a problem you need to solve and a work situation you need to survive. And so I take you through that. It it actually is a lot like writing fiction, it turns out.
0: Well, so I guess the ultimate thing is you need to keep the reader engaged so they'll keep going,
1: which keep them engaged, give them a reason to be there and, and make it easy. Don't make them work for it. You know, like you go back to some real old fantasy books, Tolkien Uh, you have to work for that. Like you have to earn getting to the end of a Tolkien book. That's some thick stuff.
0: I I Um, get a lot of crap for that. I do not enjoy those books. I just
1: didn't. I don't either. (laughs) I liked the Hobbit. I liked the Hobbit because he wrote that for a younger audience and he, he got rid of a lot of the, the, craggy rocky bits that were in there go and look at nearly any fiction book now even one written primarily for adults like my witch kind series um and it's it's much more straightforward like the, the prose should not get in the way
0: yeah it's one of the, I, I appreciate everything that it built but as far as reading it
1: uh, no thank you it's a hard read it's a hard <laughs> read yeah you look I, at some I, of the oldest some of the oldest science fiction stuff out there. So go look up um doc, 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 E. E. Smith. And he wrote a series called The Lensman. And it's like if someone could summarize it and make a, a movie out of it, it'd be great, but the reading is thick. It's really thick. It's hard to get through. And it was I mean, that was Hugo award-winning stuff at the time. Um, and now you're like, whoa, oh, that's a dense dude. Like, like bring it, bring it back.
2: When did your interest in writing fiction begin?
1: Uh, ooh, 2002. Probably before that, honestly, I, I wrote short stories and stuff just for friends of mine. Um, but around 2002, um, Chris got me a copy of, of Peter and Wendy, which was the, the, the jammed the original Peter Pan novel. And mm-hmm. I wanted to do a retelling of that. I wanted a bigger version of it. I didn't want Peter to be the main character. I wanted the fairies. I wanted there to be more than just Tinkerbell. And I wanted this whole backstory of what Neverland is and why it exists. And just I wanted to draw all that out. Um, It took me 20 years to write that book, but that's when I got interested.
0: So I remember that one stuck out to me as interesting because the way I read it is it's Peter Pan, but then you're bringing like the whole winter summer court of the, of the yeah. Fae, which is well, well defined out there and it plugged into yeah. so many things but I, I yeah. was very interested by that that idea.
1: Yeah, yeah. and and The Never my novel actually is very lightly tied into all the other novels I'm writing, all the other fantasy novels I'm writing. That comes out in the story.
0: You need to give your uh, underlying connections a name that Cosmere's Taken. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll have to think about that.
2: You seem to be very comfortable with the concept of learning by doing and just getting out there and doing it and and iterating yeah. and and all that. What? How did you get introduced to that? And obviously now you're quite comfortable with it. But can you talk a little bit about the role that that's had in your career?
1: Oh, I mean, I never had a choice, really. Right? Um, I I was never going to go to college. I knew I knew in my my sophomore year I didn't want to go to college. The idea of going to college actually got me really really depressed. Um, so I went to Votech, vocational technology education, uh, which where I was at the time in Virginia beach, uh, was a magnet school. So you left your, your home school and you went, juniors went for half a day in the afternoon. Seniors went for half a day in the morning. So I only took three classes in my home school and that was your, you know, well, (laughs) I phoned in my senior year in a way I can't even begin to tell you. I'm so embarrassed about it, but. I had an English class. I took typing, which was pointless. I took computer programming, which was absolutely a lark. Um, So, you know, Votech, you learn by doing. I took electronics and computer repair, and we were fixing TVs and fixing computers and doing stuff. So I had only ever learned by doing. I had never really sat through a lecture on anything where someone told me to do something, but I didn't immediately go do it. Um, So I I just always had that. And then out of high school, I was an apprentice aircraft mechanic for the department of the Navy. Um, And apprenticeships are 100% learned by doing. I worked right next to a master mechanic and we would work through whatever we were working through. And I had a checklist of all the different things that I needed to work on. And as a plane came in, they would assign me to whatever tasks were still on my checklist and we would have some theoretical education we would you know we would get pulled into a classroom for 3 days or a week or whatever but we would immediately go back out to the shop and and do that stuff we would work on the things that we had just learned about so i i've never not learned that way i think the college style of teaching where you sit and absorb and you're just supposed to then regurgitate that but you don't actually do it and that, that's like doctors obviously do. You know, you teach them how to cut people open, and then they go cut people open. But I think it makes people hesitant to try things. But 100% of human progress is from trying things, not listening to a lecture. We try something, and we screw it up. We're very afraid to screw things up. We're very afraid to fail. And it's not from a, oh, you know I don't want to take the whole production environment down. Well, I didn't expect you to experiment in the production environment full stand up at VM someplace. But we're so afraid to fail because we we lose points. It affects our GPA. We look stupid. People make fun of us. All of those things that we we don't try, like our, our interest, our curiosity in just poking at something is deleted when we're still teenagers. And, and it's, I, it is impossible to really truly learn something unless you have done it and failed at it. You have to fail at it to do it because that's what makes your brain care about it, right? It's a survival instinct, you know? Oh, I walked across this lake and I got mauled by a bear. Not going to do that again. So like you have to have those failure opportunities. And the only way to get that is to experiment and to be willing and actively eager
2: to fail. If you're listening to this and you're waiting to take your next step and, and whatever you're trying to, whatever goal you're trying to reach, just take that step, fail, apply for that job. Just see what's up. Just do it. You'll be better for it. You'll learn yep. some lessons. You might end up in a wild spot you never believed in. So give it a try. Yep. So
1: what of my thoughts? Yep. Was, I never you know, I never would have written this bookcase full of books if I hadn't got laid off from a dot com. And and not picked up the phone and called my recruiter and insisted he find me a job immediately.
0: Yep. The the recruiters are always interesting. That's that, that's a big one in IT where there's really good cr- recruiters where they're very interested in getting the right person the right job, and there's ones that just want to shoehorn in people in. And getting a bad rec- yeah. recruiter could change your entire outlook on on IT. I think.
1: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. There's actually a recruiter I'm connected to on LinkedIn who who does, uh, not a podcast, but like you know you can just do live videos on LinkedIn and, and such. Um, what's his name? Taylor Taylor same. Des- Desen- yeah, Taylor DeSien, um, D E S S E Y N. Um, his his tagline is "Recruiter against recruiters," <laughs> because you're exactly right. A lot of recruiters are just there for the paycheck, and they will sh- try and shove you into any job they'll get paid for. Um, and he does he does you know talks on how to deal with a recruiter, like how to make sure we're going to do the right thing for you. It's just, it's really really interesting.
2: Am I rude for almost never replying to those recruiters who hit me up? I have such a low response rate on those. It's like zero. No,
1: no, it's not rude. You're probably stupid,
2: (laughs) but not rude. And I'll I'll tell
1: you why. I'll tell you why. Hang on. I don't want to call them stupid and then not explain. (laughs) The job I'm in right now, I ignored them nine months before I took the job. And they circled back and said, hey, we are dying to can can we we at least talk to you maybe you know some people or give us and they talked to me and they started explaining the job and i'm like oh that actually is really interesting it's really really interesting tell me more so i was stupid i should have taken the call
0: Mm. mine was uh, similar The, the recruiter that got me where i'm at currently he reached out to me four times and I'll be honest, the job title was just so so bad that I wasn't wasn't interested. And so the, the fourth time, yeah. he says, all right, it's not for you. Do you know someone who would be a fit? Which got me to ask, well, what does it entail? And he explained the job to me. He's like, holy, I want that job.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes recruiters suck at marketing. And, you know, even if you don't want to take the time to get on a call, at least say, hey, if you can write me two paragraphs about what this job is here in LinkedIn, I'll let you know if I'm interested or not. But at least virtually, take the call. Um, you know, a lot of the reasons we don't is because it's like sales. We don't want to talk to them. We just we're not extroverts. I just don't want to get on the phone with one more person and have one more meeting. Contemplating that change is huge. Like even leading up to it, as I was going through interview loops with the new company and the recruiter was, you know, how's it going? Everything else, I started to get incredibly anxious just a ton of anxiety. I'd been at portal site for almost eight years. Um, company had been excellent to me. Like I had had zero complaints, everything they ever said, this is what we're going to do and be, they did. And they were, um, I didn't, I wasn't interested in leaving. I was very comfortable where I was at. I knew my friends, I knew my colleagues, I knew where the bathrooms were in the office. Like it was just, it was easy, but you know, I got through that anxiety. Um, I pushed through that unknown and I am so happy where I'm at. I've got, I have such a wonderful team. Um, you know, the the company is doing stuff that I care about. I'm useful. Like, I am able to contribute at a level that makes me just feel amazing. Like there's an upside to getting through that anxiety. Like you, you will belong there as well. Um, that change is hard to get through. And it's, it's why we blow off the recruiters.
0: So I do try to reply, but it's always, I, I take forever to get to it because I, so I always should reply to that. Then I forget about it, but it's always, I'm very happy. Where I'm, at. I'm not looking for a change, but they, I think the well, nice, I'm not currently,
1: they always I would, come back with. I would turn that around. Okay. You know what I would do? I would, I would, are you a Mac or a windows person? Windows. Disgusting. Okay. So yeah. open up, open up text edit or whatever, 1930s, text editor you guys have these days, write yourself a boilerplate, right? It's easy to reply if you can just open up this doc and copy and paste it, and then you're at least being polite. But I want you to really think about what that boilerplate says. Hey, you know, I'm currently not looking, actively looking for a position, but give me two paragraphs on this job. Sell me. Sell it to me. And then see what they say. Because you don't know what's out there in the world. They might come back. You know what? Nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be, yeah, you know, that sounds really similar to what I'm doing. And I'm really happy at where I'm at. Um, And, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. I'd rather take the thing I'm happy at than the thing I don't know. And you can have that as a boilerplate, no thanks response. Um, But that 10th time, you might be, oh, but that sounds interesting.
2: I'd like to talk to someone.
0: So for Kelly, when you're editing this, uh, don't panic
2: too much. <laughs> That's good advice. A lot of people are listening. Maybe they're not happy with their jobs. It's definitely worth it to put your name in the hat and see what's up. Um, a lot of times, what? the job descriptions don't even fit, like what your even responsibilities. Even if you're happy,
1: even if you're happy, could you be
2: happier? What does twenty like, grand say to that? I mean, it might be exactly right. Definitely. Now, with your gauge on the industry and operations and development kind of thing, where do you feel like soft skills plays into the interview process? And and more specifically, do you think that someone with lacking technical skills will have a lot more success if they have really strong soft skills? Do you think the companies are more willing to take that risk of educate versus picking the person who's really exceptional technically, but perhaps uh, weak in the soft skills area?
1: Depends on the company, but broadly speaking, yes. it's a little bit of positioning. When a company is recruiting, there's really two pools of candidates they can pull from. The first is called industry, meaning people who have jobs already. And in those cases, you typically are looking for a certain level of skill set because you, you normally are going to want someone who can hit the seat and, and start contributing reasonably quickly. Like you don't want a long ramp up time. The other pool of candidates is you are university recruiting you know they don't have any experience. They just got out of college. And so you're trying to find out if they have the right aptitudes. And a lot of that is coming is going to come down to soft skills. And you expect them to have a longer ramp up time. Well, the, the line between those two is fungible. It can move a little bit. If you've got strong communication skills, if you have a lot of confidence in yourself, if you don't undersell yourself, which oh my god 100% of people seem to do um, and and for the women who might be listening y'all are worse at it you need to stop underselling yourself so much um, you can do a lot more than you're presenting if someone says you know hey do you know powershell do not respond with well you know i'm no don jones but i can do a couple of-. no like sell yourself brag a little bit it's okay if you can come across to someone who hey you know what Um, You're looking for someone who knows Java. I know a little bit of Java, but I have taught myself 12 other languages and frameworks, and I can teach myself this one too. Here's the actual value I bring to you. It's not just that I know this one language, because we can all learn a language. I don't believe any of us dropped out of the womb knowing Java, so we all learned it at some point. But here's the real value I bring to you. And be able to articulate that. I can communicate well. I'm amazing on a team. I collaborate incredibly well. I'm very, very focused. I'm logical. I I know how to look at a business situation and know what that means to the technology. I can talk to people who aren't technology people and not make anyone cry, right? Like all of those things. Think about yourself as a vendor, because you are. Anyone who thinks, no, I'm an employee you are kidding yourself you are a business of one and you are doing a service in exchange for money and that service just like any other product or service in the world is only worth money if it is solving a problem so think about what the problem is what's the actual like you can look around your own environment you know that most of the problems have nothing to do with a language or framework most of your problems aren't going to be solved with powershell or with java or with c sharp They're going to be solved with process engineering and communications and logical thinking and understanding the business. That's how you sell yourself. Those are the actual problems.
2: Now, to circle back earlier, it sounds like if you're on the job search or you're going for a role, it would be helpful to write this stuff down. What is your story? Who are you? What can you bring to the table? Because if it's not coming naturally, it's going to have to, you know, maybe rehearse a couple of times, think to yourself, this is who I am. This is what I'm bringing to the table because it it can be beneficial to see your gaps in knowledge. But when you're vouching for yourself in a job interview, you need to bring the best representation of yourself because that's what they're looking for, right? That's expected in that type of situation. You don't need to expose all your weaknesses.
1: And if you're not willing to practice that ahead of time with a family member, then you really shouldn't be taking the interview. You don't want it. Um, and and some of that stuff needs to be on your resume. Like your resume needs to be the bullet list of all the technologies, you know, because the AI needs to see those words just to get you to the interview. But the rest of your resume needs to be what I call your win sheet. What what were your wins and how did you contribute to that win? You know, oh, I spent, I spent 20 hours uh, working on this automation project and eliminated 200 hours of manual effort. That's a win. Like, I almost don't even care what language you use. I want, I want that. I want more of that. I want that to happen. That's what I want to hire. I want someone who does that.
0: I, I do want to say. I, I think I proved that I do, in fact, have a social skill, despite all my jokes that I don't. Because normally, I introduce myself at the start as mediocre host Jordan. I'm like, you know what? If I open that with Don, he's going to give me a frowny face, and I don't want that. So I just said, Jordan,
1: <laughs> dude, you we're growing with you, See? and that's enough. It's enough to just be you.
2: Another thing that we also highlight a lot is doing public work, You know, getting engaged in uh, user groups, maybe writing some blogs, whatever the next step for the person may be. Uh, do you think that that plays a role in getting a job, the way you sell yourself, the, the public yeah. impact, the way that you can prove yourself publicly that, hey, I would be someone who can solve problems and would be fun to work with and I can communicate, at least written, assuming it's a blog, well?
1: 100 billion
2: percent, yes. Um, and here's why.
1: Employers are terrified of candidates, right? Terrified. Um, I don't know who you are. I assume everything on your resume is a lie or an exaggeration, and the the purpose of the interview process is for me to find out how much of it is truthful. Because I'm terrified of bringing someone in who's going to be a jerk to my coworkers, who's not going to produce. Like I'm just, I'm terrified uh, because once you're in, it's really hard to get rid of you. Like if you suck, it's really hard to get rid of you. And I don't want to do that to my team. I don't want to inflict that on them because they're fantastic and they don't deserve that. So if I can go look at your GitHub repo, if I can look at your blog, if I can look at what you're posting on LinkedIn, if I can look at a couple of videos on your YouTube channel, that is incredibly relieving. Oh, look, he, he's he gone out. Um, he's talked to some user groups. It's, it's a great video. But look, she writes this, you know, these great posts all the time that are super, super insightful that like, I'd, I'd love to have that kind of insight on my team uh, or, you know, oh my God, look at her GitHub repo. She's, she's doing these massive contributions to the community. I can get in the issues. Look how professionally she responds. Even when someone's kind of being a, a, a jerk, she's like, she keeps it really professional level. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about that. I, That's huge. Oh my That just makes my heart unclench.
2: I think that so often the work we do inside of an organization while we're employed kind of disappears when we're gone. But having that artifact of, hey, here's what I can do, and being able to feel confident knowing that you have some form of proof. And these aren't all just memories that have disappeared now that you've moved on to a new job. It's a
1: portfolio. It's a portfolio. It's always been easier for developers to have a portfolio um, because they've written code. Um, It's tough for other people. You know, you you can't have a GitHub repo that shows the network you built, um, but you can talk about it on YouTube to a user group in abstract terms, or even not to a user group. Uh, you can ask yourself to get invited onto a podcast and talk about it. Like you can create those artifacts where you get to talk about your experience and and show that you're a logical, professional, well-spoken individual. Who cares? And, and is interested in helping other people care because I don't want someone who's just going to come in and do their job I want people who are going to come in and help my team do its job like I want to see human interaction I want to see collaboration I want to see that you know you can talk and you can have a meeting and people can disagree with you and that's okay and you can work through it like those are all incredibly valuable things to see and if you can have discussions conference, sessions, user group meetings, you know, back and forth in blog comments, a conversation on LinkedIn, anything like that is, is just, it's helpful in showing me who you are and what you stand for.
2: So get out there, people. We, we keep telling them, take yep. your next step, do your engage. thing. Engage. engage. You'll feel great about yourself when it's over.
0: All right. Well, I, I think we're coming to the point where we're, uh, the common parameters, but we've hit a, a unique roadblock. Where, where a lot of the parameters are things that, uh, like one of them, what's one thing, you know, now you like to share with the younger self, I feel like a lot of this discussion is just that, is about taking your career to the next level. Like, we just spent an hour covering that that common parameter.
1: Yeah, yeah. If I had to tell my younger self one thing, it would probably be to, to take more risks. Um, I wish I had gotten involved in the dot-com startups sooner. I got, I got in at the end and dot-bombed. Um, I'm super risk averse, incredibly risk averse. You know, when I got laid off, not taking a job right away, I had anxiety attacks for three years, almost nightly. Um, I had to come up with techniques. I, I would go back and tell myself, "It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It will be fine." Um, take take a few more risks.
0: That's good advice. I'm 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 with you on the conservative approach. Everything about me is and very most very of methodical.
1: us are. <laughs> I'm I'm still that way. I have to push myself.
0: All right. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, in, in your comment to us earlier that you haven't installed uh, PowerShell 7 on your Mac yet. So as no. far as the three modules, instead, uh, I, I heard your you're, you're, uh, disdain for, for Windows and your love of Mac. So my take is, and this is weird. So I, don't, who's been...
1: I, I don't love Macs. I just don't hate them. Just don't... Windows, <laughs> gets in, Windows gets in my way it It just puts so many barriers in the way for me doing what I want to do, and the Mac puts far fewer. That's all it is.
0: So I, I guess for a different it's no longer a common premise it's a new question. Uh, would you do you find that Microsoft moving more to the uh, open source has helped move some of those barriers? Where or are the barriers getting worse in your opinion?
1: I think they're getting worse. really. You know, like the the out of box experience on Windows. Like they ship so much crapware with it beyond before Dell even gets their hands on it. They ship so much crapware it's sign up for M365, you know what? I, I literally just bought a computer. It's covered in stickers. I have to go get Google on to get the stickers off. Can you just, can you just show me an app? Can I just do something, please? That's all I want to do. Um, You know, Mac, Mac even dialed back on the whole hello video that they've been doing for years and years. They don't even do that. It's it's when you install it, it's boom, there you go. What do you want? Start working.
0: It's, user there's, experience there's... has always been where Mac has crushed it, that's for sure.
1: They did. Um, I, I, I have strong mistrust of the, the revenue motivations going on in the client side of Windows these days. I have no idea what's happening in the, the Windows server world. I assume they're they're just fine. Um, I've always been very happy with Windows as a server operating system. Never never had issues with it at all. You know, Just delightful working with it. I've never really worked with Linux servers in a, a strong sense, and there's no such thing as a Mac server. It never really has been. Um, Windows as a client, I just find incredibly frustrating. I, I had to help a friend the other day, and I, I pull it up. I'm like, oh, my God, why do I have to click so many things just to get here? So the one that has
0: me recently is they have started down the path of apps will reinstall themselves, or it's no longer just a, a simple uninstall. And that does make me very angry.
1: Yeah, whereas on my Mac, if I want to delete an app, I just delete the app. I, I click it and hit delete, and it's gone.
0: Right. I think this is the one for, this is one people are gonna take the most away uh, home with because everyone assumes you've probably never made a mistake. So what's one time <laughs> something went wrong while on the job and how did you handle it? Oh,
1: so many things to choose from. Um, so the oldest one I can distinctly remember, uh, when I worked for electronics boutique, so that became EB games. They were later bought out by, by GameStop. We, we had an OS two based point of sale system and it was, it was just a dumpster fire. And and I, I joked, we had hired a new CIO and I joked to them. I'm like, you know, one day we're going to get snowed in or something. And I'm just going to rewrite this whole thing in visual basic. And he laughed and we got snowed in. I rewrote the whole thing in visual basic um and so i was now the point of sale programmer um and they they paid me overtime for my time and everything else which means they got an entire custom point of sale system for about $20,000 which looking back wow what a deal great deal um however we we were constantly adding to it like we were constantly trying to grow the thing and add new things we we did you know i i shipped a new version every couple of weeks and and when i say i shipped i mean literally I'm like, here, guys, here's the zip file. Download it to all the stores tomorrow. That was our release process. This was the 90s. It was a simpler time. Um, We had decided that we were going to put in, I was going to integrate a card swiper. So at the time, you rang up the transaction on the computer, but you had a separate card terminal to process the credit card. Well, we wanted to integrate all that. So I put all the code in there. And the way I coded it was if you didn't get the swipe, like if I didn't see the swipe, then you had to punch in the credit card number. Well, I shipped that, n- not thinking that like there's so many other steps that have to happen before they're going to be able to switch all of the swiping over to the computer. And so for close to three months, every single credit card transaction the store was being asked to key in the credit card number manually, which you know it, is appalling both from a workload perspective, security. Like looking back, I'm like, oh my god. And it wasn't until I was on the phone with the story He's like, oh, hang on. I have to type in the credit card number. I'm like, well, but why? He says, it prompts us for the credit card number and everything. I'm like, oh, oh, it does. He's like, Can you do anything about that? I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't. Sorry.
0: Oops. So for that would be happening for months, how does it take that long to get to you? Like, if that's such a pain point, you'd think that the complaints would have come rolling in early and fast.
1: I mean, how long does it take for complaints to get to developers in any application?
0: i guess that's true yeah
1: right it's just no one complained about it because they were so used to having a piece of crap system that one more piece of crap thing was not novel to them. it's just it 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 just took that long i i felt absolutely terrible and of course fixed it and like we we did a little post-mortem and that's when we we said okay like we actually need a release process here you know i'm going to hand it over to bill and bill is going to test it and when bill says it's okay to ship then it ships so we did learn right you know we we improved from it
0: all right well for for our uh listeners at home a lot of people don't realize this but uh andrew was handpicked by don as someone that was up and coming as a scholarship uh the first ever scholarship recipient uh, what i'm yeah, thinking our
1: on-ramp track at Summit. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I don't think anyone expected. I think it was before, yeah. No one expected that he would take all of that potential and turn it into the ability to shill for his own podcast. But uh, you're, about to see, <laughs> you're about to see the culmination of, of years of, of expertise in building and coaching from Andrew. Take it away, Andrew.
2: Yeah, I'm interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's uh, shilling projects I'm involved in. Thank you. <laughs> For listening to us, everybody. Like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube um, and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Email us, powershell at pdq.com. Tell us your story. Tell us what you're struggling with, um, your PowerShell journey. We'd love to hear it. And you can find us on the Bird website at PowerShell Pod. Um, thanks to Don for joining us. You had a huge impact on my life, and it's been an honor to get to interview you. Look forward to seeing you at Summit. Um, not wait. Can't wait. Where can people keep track of what you're up to and see what you've been writing?
1: Uh, you can look at donjones.com. That's easiest. Um, I do have a newsletter. Uh, that's just, It's monthly, real low-key. Um, and if I am I am trying to not do the Twitter anymore because it has made me insane. Um, but I am at donjones at, uh, what is it, techhub.social? Yeah, techhub.social. So I'm there. And I'm also at donjones at wandering.shop, um, which is much more you know, around people who, who love books and write books and read books. There's a bunch of authors on there. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan
1: Hammond and Andrew Plaw. The only device of its kind in the world. The
2: PowerShell Podcast is a production of pdq.com.